What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. This is episode 95, and as I'm recording this segment on November 7, 2020, Joe Biden has just been projected to be the 46th president of the United States, unseating the aspirational fascist Donald Trump and preventing his second term. My guest on this episode is my friend, fellow secular American and pollster, Juhum Navarro Rivera. But before we get to that conversation, I can't resist sharing a few thoughts about this election. I think it's fair to say that secular humanists around the world are at least relieved and perhaps even elated by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's historic victory. Donald Trump has been a scourge on our nation and a threat to the life and safety of millions of people worldwide, and especially those who call the United States of America home. He absolutely needed to go. LGBTQ folks, black, indigenous, and other people of color, non-religious folks, and the poor and working class will all have a better chance to fight for what they need and deserve under a Biden administration rather than under another Trump administration. That said, a Biden-Harris White House is a long way from guaranteeing the conditions for human and planetary flourishing. The Democratic Party managed to retake the Rust Belt states of Michigan and Wisconsin that Hillary Clinton narrowly lost, and will probably flip Arizona, if not Georgia as well. At this moment, we don't have a definitive decision in either state, and Georgia is headed for a recount, according to state officials. So it'll be some time there before we know who the winner is, but we know that Biden has enough electoral votes at this moment to be named the next president of the United States. Democrats did not experience the blue wave they were predicting, Polling was once again way off in the direction of Democrats, creating, again, a very tense week for everyone. Democrats didn't retake the Senate, even if both Georgia seats go to the Democrats in the runoff, and they've lost at this hour six seats in the House when they predicted expanding their lead. So I think some sobriety is in order as we celebrate the removal of Donald Trump, and yet it is still a huge relief. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with a neoliberal executive branch, a divided Congress, and a very right-leaning Supreme Court. What that really means is that we have to keep doing what we've been doing, which is building mass movements in our cities and towns, mobilizing in the streets for human dignity. Record numbers of people are being diagnosed with COVID-19 as we stare down a third wave this winter. Eviction moratoria are expiring in a few months in the dead of winter, 
and hundreds of thousands of people face eviction. Hundreds of children who sought asylum with their parents here in the United States and were separated from them at the border have not been reunited because they can't find their parents. All the crises remain. The kinder, gentler capitalist party will soon be in charge, and we must continue to fight for our freedom and dignity. Still, I have felt the relief of this election result in my body and in my mind today. The mainstream media had already called it for Biden before I woke up this morning, and it was one of the first notifications I saw on my phone as I peeled my eyes open. At first, I was nonplussed. For one thing, I had already determined for myself that this would be the outcome. And for another, I'm definitely not a Biden fan. So I felt like, okay, good, but I wasn't in a celebratory mood at all. But as the day has gone on, I can't deny this feeling that a huge burden has been lifted. I feel a little less anxious, a little more hopeful. Trump has never had a majority of Americans who support his brand of neo-fascism. He is ineffectual and ill-tempered. We lucked out in that regard, I feel. After watching the news this morning for a few minutes, Brooke started cleaning the house. I got up from what I was doing and started working with her. Before long, we had swept and swiffered our wood floors, vacuumed the carpets, dusted the furniture, and straightened the whole house. I asked her when we were done if she thought it was consciously or even maybe subconsciously related to the Trump defeat, and she said, without a doubt. We may not have a clean slate, but it's better than the horribly polluted one we've had for the last four years. It's fine to feel however you feel about this election, and I'm sure my feelings will evolve and change in the coming days. This show is made possible with the generous support of listeners like you. Another enormous thank you to the members of the podcast who support the show from month to month. You are my heroes, and I'm so tremendously grateful. I fit this work in around my day job at the Secular Student Alliance and my local organizing work. Your support for this is what makes it possible. If you haven't signed up to support the show, today is a great day to do it. Just go to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. You can pledge any amount, whatever you think it's worth. There are also a number of things you can do that are completely free. You can share this episode on your social media. You can rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about Life After God by visiting our website at lifeaftergod.org. From there, you can follow us on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our extensive back catalog of episodes. You can also write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I love getting email from listeners, and I look forward to hearing from you. As I mentioned earlier, my guest today is Dr. Juam Navarro-Rivera. Juam is a political scientist, writer, public speaker, and research consultant. He is the founder, political research director, and managing partner at Socioanalytica Research, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Humanist Studies. He has extensive experience working with research organizations, including Pew, PRRI, and others. So we recorded this conversation about a week ago, before the election. So towards the end, you'll hear me ask Joom to make some predictions about the outcome of the election. I hope you enjoy finding out whether Joom has predictive powers greater than that of Nate Silver. Our conversation is based around a recent report from Socioanalytica Research entitled Secular Voices Survey. You might want to have the report we're discussing available as you listen to this episode. The link to that report and other items we discuss in this episode are in the show notes. Okay, let's get to this conversation with Juam about the political views of secular Americans. Juam Navarro Rivera, welcome to the Life After God podcast. 
Ah, uh, thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. It's you, great. You interview many of my friends, so I'm so sorry that it's taken this long. You know, it's I, I say this almost every episode, but this is way overdue. And but I'm glad we're finally doing it. Thank you, in part, to Sarah Henry. Yes, yes. Thanks to Sarah, and yeah, it's been a, a year in the making. I think. Yeah, it's, it's embarrassing to admit, but but yes. Don't worry. I, I mean, story of life. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, so let's start by just talking a little bit about your um, sort of your personal history um, with respect to, I guess, your um, you know your academic pursuits as well as like your personal. Um, beliefs and and kind of how you ended up uh, wh- where you ended up today, which is as the founder and principal of Socioanalytica Research. Um, we'll get into the work that you're doing in a little while, but um, in in just a few minutes. But but tell me tell me a little bit about your personal background and and kind of how you got to this point. Yes, so I grew up in Puerto Rico. Uh, I was born there. Uh, and lived there until until I finished college. Um, so you know, like I moved uh, when I was twenty one. So I've been essentially half my life here now in in the states. Uh, and you know, I went to like as I call it the most boring story ever told uh, in terms of like deconversion and stuff like that. <laughs> my my life uh, as a religious person wasn't wasn't very long, and it, you know I was baptized Catholic. Uh, I don't have memory of it because I was like a few months old, right? <laughs> uh, as many Catholics are, and you know I, I went to religious school, so I went to like a Disciples of Christ elementary school that mm. was near my my dad's uh, garage, like he he had back in those days, an auto repair shop. And right. then uh, and then I went to two Catholic schools, including a Catholic high school where I graduated uh, and I, that I loved, like, you know, it closed actually, uh, but it was, an, it was an amazing experience. I had very good left-wing kind of like liberation theology mm. kind of teachers that were fired the next year. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> after I graduated. <laughs> yeah, like the... the you know, my, my brother graduated from there a few years later, and I, it was a very different school, like very conservative by that time. Um, so, you know, I was very lucky being in that environment with those teachers who, like, encouraged, like, free thought and and just, like, you know, I was a, a little – I wasn't a class clown because I, I was, like, in the, you know – what do you call it now? Uh, gifted kids kind of stuff. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, like there was no class clown per se in that class. <laughs> uh, so, so I was the closest thing to what they had, uh, mostly because I was very reverent about church things and, and whatnot. So it, it, I think in some ways it was very predictable the way I ended. Yeah. Um, not, not, not very, not very respectful of religion. I, I, I think, a lot of people become atheist uh, in my case. Uh, it wasn't because of like, you know, science or anything like that. It was more about looking at relationships of power and always mm. being very suspicious of religious people and like these leaders and what was the source of their authority. Mm. Um, after that, I went to, so after that, after I, I finished that high school, I went to the University of Puerto Rico, uh, 
which was my dream. Like, you know, that's a historical campus uh, in San Juan, the section called Rio Piedras, history of student, student upheaval, uh, like a lot of activism. So, you know, I, I major in political science. And I loved it. Those were like four amazing years. I still love them. I mm. still remember them fondly. Um, and while I was there, I, I wasn't particularly the best student. I was. I didn't attend many of my classes my first two years. There was too much to do there, like too much <laughs> learning to do outside of the classroom. Mm. Uh, but I, I was able to graduate with honors, like applying my last two years. And, and I got the attention of a few professors uh one of them who like you know took me under his wing and i ended up like shipped after graduation to a phd program uh in political science in, in connecticut and after that i was I, I was burned out so i i after two years i dropped off the radar went to work started like doing actually working on public health and doing stats work uh, and it was, you know, like that, that's the thing I caught up in college with this professor was like a lot of, uh, learning how to do a statistical analysis. Um, and after a few years, I got kind of tired and I wanted to go back to school. A lot of my colleagues were PhDs and they were getting like academic jobs and they were like encouraging me to go back to get my, to finish my degree. Uh, so I went back to to the University of Connecticut. Uh, by that time, my my the person who was my my advisor was the department chair. So we got everything ready to for me to get back to the department, and that was in two thousand and seven. And and how and that that's the year where I ended in like the secular stuff, mm. uh, mostly because I am like we get an email. The department gets an email looking for from Trinity College in Hartford, uh, looking for a research fellow uh, at this newish Institute for the Study of Secularism in Society and Culture uh, to work with Dr. Barry Cosman and Dr. Ariella Kesar, uh, who are doing like some research on non-religion and whatnot, and. And one of my friends tells me, like, ah, this is right, right down your alley. Because I did a lot of stuff on religion, but we didn't really have religion as either a major at, at Connecticut or the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, and no experts on religion in in, in, the, in our department. Mm. So, so, you know, I applied and uh, I was in Washington, D.C. doing a, an internship at the U.S. Census when, like, I get the call so i interview in connecticut like i meet barry and ariella we hit it off hmm. uh, the same the, you know the first day and so i started that semester of 2007 first thing we're doing is like prepping to get in the field the american religious identification survey for 2008 hmm. uh and so you know we got we got some reports and we got and then like in 2009 we finally released the survey we were like most of 2008 fielding it uh you know now you can get amazing tons of data survey data quickly thanks to online surveys like that was a still hmm. not a th not a thing for reputable surveys in 2008 yeah, so you know, we had to go to the old school phone surveys um 
And, you know, it was an amazing experience. Uh, that's how I learned about the movement because once in we do that, you know, we released the survey in 2009, we like have this number of the knowns are 15% of the population. Uh, and like, you know, we ran with that number that, that that's what puts us in the map, not just the Institute, but also the knowns. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, we start getting requests from like the different organizations in the movement to get like, you know, some deeper details. So we ended up doing a second report, which was just about the knowns, uh, which is still like, up to this day, the the work that I'm most cited for that okay. I have published, uh-huh. um, and and yeah, and so so you know that that's how I became aware of the movement. By that point, I, I was already an out atheist, hmm. uh, but but I really didn't know. So I was like you know a known with you know no organizational grounding or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that it remains that the case until 2012. Uh, there's an opening at PRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, uh, mm-hmm. with your one of your recent guests, That's my right. ex-boss Robbie Jones. Yeah. Um, and so you know, like at that point, like PRI was a mostly a two-person operation, mm. uh, <laughs> Robbie and Dan Katz, and. And so they were actually hiring the first researcher out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, w- that wasn't them. And so I applied and, you know, Barry Cosmin and, and Mark Silk talk, like, you know, were my main references. And, you know, they knew the work of, of, of the American Real Estate Education Survey. So I ended up moving to D.C. without finishing my Ph.D. <laughs> uh, and uh, and yeah, and. And working with them, like you know, I, I got involved in a, in a in a bunch of different projects. Uh, but now moving to DC meant I started getting more involved with the other organizations that now are based in DC. Uh, and I think I, you know now I've been in DC for eight years, mm-hmm. and and I have tasted all of them. And so my journey ended in in the American Humanist Association. Like I, I think fits better the way I am right now hmm. uh, in my journey, which went like from like maybe 2003, 2004, new atheist kind of face, <laughs> uh, lots of Dawkins, Harris, uh, anti-religion, uh, <laughs> uh, to like, you know, right now, no, like, I don't want to read about those guys. And I'm actually in the move. We have to, get rid of books so like those were the first to go <laughs> uh yeah and 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 so yeah so and and you know like even at, at a level of of personality speaking uh i i really i really like how the people at aha uh received me mm. uh i would say like the two best experiences i've had in organization have been with the Washington Ethical Society, which I'm kind of like an ad hoc member because it's too churchy for me, the Ethical Society, but but I do like them. Yes. Uh, and 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 AHA in terms of, of as an organization, and like you know, I eventually met Roy Speckhardt, and, yeah. and ended up now in the in the board of directors have been since 2019. Hmm. I, uh, I voted for you as a member. So ah, oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I know of two people who voted for me other than, <laughs> yeah, me and you. That's right. Nice to know. Uh, 
So, so yeah, so that, that has been my, my journey, kind of like my, my scholarship, like, you know, my, my involvement in all these religion knowns kind of research led me, led me to find the movement. And, uh, so it wasn't the other way around. And although I was already like an atheist by, by the time I was doing the research, uh, and that was led me to IEEC, like, you know, that interest in non-religion, mm-hmm. uh, particularly among Latinos, because we, we, I, I was surprised about the number of non-Latinos that, that Latino knowns that we found in that survey was 12%. Now it's about 25. Um, so I'm really, it's, you know, I, I, I realized I wasn't alone. <laughs> yeah. And people must categorize, and I guess now we're getting into some of the sort of the meat of the work you've been doing lately with your new organization that you only started, I think, what, a year or two ago? Three years ago. Three. Wow, time flies. Socioanalytica Research. Look it up, folks. We'll put the link to um, everything that Joam's doing in the the show notes. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think with... I just did an interview with um, Victoria de la Torre here in San Diego about the Secular Day of the Dead, and we started talking about the way that Latinx communities relate to religion and... Um, and I suppose and this is where I always get confused by research data, you know, because it's self-reporting, right? It, there's no empirical measure of whether a person is religious or, I mean, I guess there is, if they go to church that you could say that that person's religious, but you're not standing outside of church, like writing down how many people go. You're relying on people self-reporting that they go to church or they don't, um, or they have other practices like prayer or reading the Bible or I don't know meditation or crystals or whatever they do. And I wonder for especially Latinx communities, whether they think of themselves as religious, even if they're not very religious, if that makes any sense. It, it makes sense. Uh, I, you know, I think there's, there's that stereotype of, of the, of the Latinx person as being religious I think it comes two ways. I think one one is this assumption that everybody's Catholic, right. Uh, right. you know that, that Pentecostal, the, you know, like the Catholic Church is like you know huge. Well, not not as huge as it was like a hundred years ago, but certainly still huge in in many places in Latin America. And so, I th- definitely, that's part of of the assumption that we're Catholic, and if we're not Catholic, then we're Pentecostals, right? Uh, who were Catholic? Who were and, like, yes, <laughs> and and that is not the case. Uh, like you know, Latin Latinx people have been from the beginning of the Pentecostal movement part of the movement. Mm. So there's like generations of Latinxes who have never been Catholic, right? Uh, and and so that's one. And and second, it's that because the you know, being Catholic is such a normal thing or it's being seen as a normal thing means that a lot of people leave, but they, you know, they, they don't announce it. I mean, I, I mean, my, my, I think my, my experience is pretty typical of a, of a Catholic who is now not religious. It's like, you know, we, we, we did the rites, like, you know, yeah. got baptized or like, you know, maybe people got married in a church, but, but they didn't go to church after that. Like, you know, they just did those ceremonies not necessarily because they were Catholics, because but because it's the thing that people do in the culture and, those, and in the community. Yeah. yeah, and so, but but I think to to a large extent, a lot of people. I I like to say that 
when we unveil these numbers of the knowns, I think what, what happens is that people start getting honest rather than leaving religion. And that a lot of people now don't like not, now it has become so entrenched in the culture that people are not afraid of saying anymore that they're not religious. Right. Yeah. The halo effect uh, has gone away a little bit where they, they feel a little bit ashamed. And so they're going to say they go to church three times a month, but really they only go like three times a year. And and we shouldn't underestimate the the effect of of two forces, especially in the United States, of like you know, white evangelicals like giving this name to religion that people want to run away from. Mm. And then within the Catholic Church, all, all the uh, 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 the abuse scandals of like, the you know, the 1990s, early part of the of the century. Yeah. So so, you know, in, in, in a way, a lot of people have been not happy with those identifications. And and so it, it makes sense. I mean, if you see in in general, not just Latinx people who get less attention in terms of who are living, but I mean, a bunch of the nuns, if you look at the former religion, it's a bunch of former Catholics. And, and in the Aries, we did like one batch of like a subsample and we asked them about their ethnic origin and like it was full of Irish and Italians. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you get that shortcut. Right. So that this kind of... Um... I guess is uh, getting a little ahead of ourselves, but just backing up for a second, we're talking about you, you know, through the lens of um, since you you know mentioned your own background being Latino, um, sort of through the lens of, of Latinx people, we've been talking about what is secular really, and so let, I want to back up and just basically ask you that question because in the report that you just recently released, you really do start by like defining some terms and and it's a pretty broad category. The, the secular people, who who do you include in that, and how do you determine whether a person fits into that category? Yeah, so that that depends how the question is asked. So in in the case of 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 the question that I'm using, I'm using a modified Pew version, uh, mostly because Pew has like this long list of religion, to which is not the- religions; it's this long list of Christian denominations, right. and then a few uh, other religions. It, and then like atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular. So I kind of like did a modified version of that because I wasn't going to have that huge a sample. <laughs> so I just decided to like get some main Christian categories like Protestant, Catholic, uh, Orthodox. And and then I knew I wasn't going to get enough n- not Christian religious people, so Jewish, Buddhist. So I actually created like a bucket for that and then people open-ended gave it that to me. And then atheist, agnostic, and nothing in particular. Those were like the three categories that people who answered those three are essentially the, the secular. I define it as secular because I, you know, like using the term known is kind of like weird in a report. Yeah, the nuns, uh, it was almost like a, a placeholder and it's always been begging for more analysis. Yes. Uh, and. Yes. So, and and the reason we use knowns in in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine was because it had been used in the previous iteration of the of the Aris. And so, uh, we, you know, we kind of like had that, Aris? that story Just going. Uh, for those that maybe don't know, what is the what is Aris? Oh, the American Religious Identification Survey. Right. So that comes so that, out that, every that year. Was the third time it was conducted. Oh, okay. 
How often is that done? Is it on a regular cycle or just kind of whenever they no, decide to do it? No, it? it was on the cycle on of, of You Got Money. Uh, for it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what is the difference... Um, let me, I'll, I'll sort of go into a footnote here and ask a question about methodology. How, how does your sample size compare to the other large research organizations? And, um, well, let me just start with that. So, yeah, so my sample is about 2020, I think. 2020 and 2020. 2020, or something like that. Uh, I think it was 2019, but uh, it, was, it was in the, that ballpark. And, you know, I, I compared it with particularly the PRI, which I have still I have very good relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's in the same ballpark, uh, okay. especially after you go with waiting. And this is one of the things I've been finding that Phone surveys, like most of the PRI samples or Pews, uh, although Pew has now some online samples, uh, or the congressional, uh, cooperative congressional electoral study that it's online. Like online samples, you get a higher proportion of non-religious, and that kind of like gets weighted down. So I, I got about 29% non-religious sample. Mm. So with the weights, because uh, of course being an online sample, it's like an excuse a little younger. So with the weights, it goes down to 26, which is what PRI has right now. Okay. So it, it, it's, in, it's in that same ballpark. I'm always amazed so, that you can extrapolate to an entire nation the size of the United States from so few people, but I don't pretend to understand statistics. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, in, uh, you know, g- g- you have to do some like some math, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's 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 doable. Yeah, uh, if you have if you have a good method, you know, a good method of comparison, or as my old college professor would say, just get a lot of people, and you're gonna get closer to the real number. The, right, the more people you have. <laughs> right, right, right. So you you found that um, basically. 26% or just over a quarter of Americans identify in some way as secular, either atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Yeah. And that most of those, two-thirds of them, are nothing in particular. Um, yes. So we're really looking at a group of people that still might, and as you point out in another um, breakdown of the data, would even believe in God might maybe yes so so the 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 non-religious the knowns or in this case the secular in this in this particular project uh are can be believers or not believers uh but they the main the main glue or, or what keeps them together as a category is the fact that they do not officially belong to a religion gotcha yeah that makes uh, sense and do they and so then your effort is to try to identify how this group of people that are held together by this idea that they don't have one of the normal recognized religions um have particular social and political views in roughly in common or or at least you can identify some areas of common common viewpoint related to social issues or economic issues um what were some of the things that stood out to you as as um, these sort of common ground among the non-religious or among the secular, as you put it? Um, and did any any of that surprise you? Um, 
So I think the main thing that stuck to me, which I actually did for uh, for an op-ed for or a friendly atheist uh, that came out around the the week after the the survey came out, and it was <clears throat> that the voting patterns like so you would expect that the the non-religious, at least if you look at the exit polls, uh, which is good for noting voting patterns, but not necessarily voter turnout, which is a whole different kind of worms. <laughs> it's about like 70-30, or has, has been in that ballpark at least since 2000. Mm. Uh, so 70 Democrat, 30 Republican, although it never kind of reaches 30. Yeah. Uh, and so I, you know, I did that, but, but one of the things that you can't really do with exit polls uh, is like look at what issues, especially looking at issues of science or, or that, you know, kind of like there's the assumption that this community cares about. Uh, because exit polls, like they don't go that deep into like, you know, you, essentially you voted for this candidate and then like kind of like how you rank these issues and, there's a, you know, like they're done for a different purpose. Right. Um and so I wanted to look at a little bit deeper into like, you know, this pre-election poll and see where people were at. Although that wasn't generally the purpose of the survey, it's just an election year. And so you have to ask about the election. Otherwise, nobody's going to pay attention to you. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, you know, I got the 68 to 30 uh, range of 68 voting for, for Biden, 30 announced that they were going to vote for, for Trump. Uh, people have been emailing me and like leaving message that they're appalled uh, that so many people uh, and we can get into in, into that breakdown a, a little later. But you know, one of the things that I wanted to know if the secular, you know, the the atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular, or all these different labels that I asked that subsample of people, how did they identify as you were free thinkers, spiritual but not religious? Uh, how what what issues like click with them. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the main thing is that everybody is like freaking out about the coronavirus, which is not surprising. Not surprising. And that's the main issue, particularly for people who are voting for Biden in this group, are concerned about the coronavirus, healthcare, and the economy. And then this group is also the most likely to care about climate change, which is their fourth main issue. Okay. Uh, and but but the main thing I wanted to know in that regard is looking at those issues of science was whether people, uh, you know, there's this assumption that the spiritual but not religious are kind of like into woo and uh, right. you know, not not really like hardcore secularists. <laughs> and in fact, like at least it, in this survey, like that is the case that there's no much daylight in terms of like the issues that they care. So there's like a coherent pro-science uh, or at least pro-scientific public policy right. uh, cohort of, of secular people in regardless of how you identify. So the spiritual but not religious are similarly concerned about science that are the atheist agnostic crew. And yeah. I, I think that is fascinating. And it may have to do with like... I, I, I th- I'll leave it there because if not, I'll, I'll go on into other theories. And yeah, I mean, I often think I often see Christians in the same kind of category where 
you know, they believe that God heals people, for example, like certain Christians do. And, and yet when they get sick, they go to the doctor, um, you know, or they might, um, you know, believe that this earth is made for us to, uh, to dominate and, and, you know, use for our pleasure, but they might also buy a hybrid car because they're concerned about the environment. So there's all of these contradictions also that exist within ideological groups that don't always make sense on the surface. Yes, and but for for nones, I, I yeah, the, the the assumption was that you know the nothing the, the spiritual but not religious in particular because I create I I added that category in there as a label uh, to see how many people fit in there, and the fascinating was that a lot it was the most popular category. That's right. Uh, yeah, the, the all secular. If you group them all together, forty seven percent of agnostics, atheists, and the nothing in particular were. Uh, identified as spiritual but not religious. They could pick more than one. Yes, you could pick more than one. What well, I and got a kick out no, of nobody picked was secular. Was, that's, that's, yeah, was I circled I, it I, and ironic. wrote. I, yeah, I circled it and wrote "ha ha" in the in the margin. Like only nine percent of secular people identify as secular. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty great. So one of the other really interesting things here that you did, which I haven't seen other reports, and maybe I've just missed it. Um, you have this category or this um, this graphic asking, like where you ask folks, do you think that certain people or movements or institutions have changed the country mostly for the better or mostly for the worse? And you broke it out between all Americans as a whole versus secular people. And it was really fascinating. For instance, social media, all Americans and secular people equally 21 percentage points difference towards the negative that social media has been a negative influence on the country. Um, But, and and what's interesting is this, this view that religion people, that people without religion are a negative effect on the country. Uh, 10% of all Americans um, answered that. No. So they gave it a minus 10%. So compare, you know, the difference between those who say mostly for the better or mostly for the worse. So most people said mostly for the worse. Mostly for the worse by by ten yes, percent overage, like yes, that direction. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I guess it pr- probably shouldn't surprise me, but that that surprised me a little bit. And and honestly, like I expected to see a higher number for secular people, but it was actually pretty low as well, fourteen percent more. So yeah, so the the question has three categories, uh, which is. Do you think the following people, movements, or institutions have changed the country mostly for the better, mostly for the worse, or have not made much difference? Okay, so there's the and neutral so, one. Uh, yeah, so there's that big category of mostly, you know, makes not much difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, for the most part, that was in most categories the plurality. Right. Uh, unless you have like someone like Barack Obama or Donald Trump that evoke a lot of feelings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Indeed. And and but yeah so so that means that that category is excluded and just did the difference of better or worse uh but that doesn't necessarily mean that on balance like everybody's uh, you know like most people said for the worse that means in those categories in particular met most people said met not much difference right uh and one of the reasons i did this chart that way is that the original chart was like has the all the categories plus two like you know all americans and and secular people at the same time like it was way too much to handle right 
The other one that I wanted to, to mention, which I really jumped out at me, was the difference between people's views of immigrants from Europe versus immigrants from Mexico and their influence on society. I mean, just really disheartening. You know, all Americans have a, a much more negative view of immigrants from Mexico than immigrants from Europe. And again, not that I should be very surprised by this, but to see it in print always takes me a little aback. Yes, that was a little experiment I wanted to do. Uh, so the people who got human uh, people from uh, immigrants from Europe didn't get immigrants from Mexico and vice versa. So it was like a split sample. Oh, interesting. Uh, so because you know, usually if you do something like this, then like especially if you're doing it online, people may be able to get back and like try to fix it. <laughs> Oh, um, true. Go back. To, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. No, if I say like I, I want to sound less racist, <laughs> I see what he's up uh, to here. So, yeah. <laughs> so I decided to leave it. And you know, the, both samples are are similarly demographically. So you can you, you look at these assumptions and 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 but I I know you are pretty uh, disheartened by these results. But I would tell you that secular people actually had similar views of both. <laughs> Right, exactly. uh, immigrants from Mexico and immigrants from Europe. Like it was, I think the only group that actually had had like, you know, either they're fully racist or not racist, but they certainly <laughs> have had the. And and if you look at you know certainly the you know if you look at the racial difference, like white people even higher in terms of like less positive view of immigrants from Mexico than if you slice and dice conservative Republican. Uh, and then more positive uh, him, uh, people from Europe. So, but yeah, the, the reason I wanted to do it that way is because it's, uh, you know, I, I've always, I, I've been interested, I mean, for a long time, mostly because then you know, I come from Puerto Rico, my wife is from Mexico. Uh, and, I, and I'm amazed how, how Americans love tacos and hate Mexicans. Right. Yeah, uh, and and Cinco de Mayo, and yes, and and not only that, like looking at you know these the you know, and I think Robbie mentioned something like this in 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 in, in the episode he was in uh, of your podcast, uh, which is that you know people have these at least on paper have these positive views of immigrants, and then when you ask deeper, like they have these really racist notions, right. Right. Uh, yeah. If you ask them, are you a racist? They're going to say no. If you say exactly. Like, but and then like people are very positive toward immigrants, but then they don't really like to make life easier for immigrants. Right. Exactly. Uh, and it's like and black so, lives uh, matter, uh, but we're not going to do anything to make black lives more important. Yes. And and so it was a way of looking at, you know, how people look at immigration from two perspectives and, and see like rather than looking at how they look at immigrants changing the country for the better. Right. Well, speaking of policy issues, you, you did ask them, you know, your um, participants, lots of different questions about various policy positions and broke them down again by uh, all Americans versus secular Americans. And there wasn't that much difference on progressive policy issues, you know, expanding health care access to all Americans. Seventy seven percent of all Americans ranked that as important um, which I think matches other studies I've seen or other statistics I've seen in the news that Medicare for all or some version of Medicare for all is actually, you know, three quarters of Americans would like to see this. Um, 85% of all secular identifying people would like to see access to healthcare expanded to everyone. 
a um, little bit more on climate change, a little bit. The secular folks are just a little bit more favorable towards these policies um, than than others, except for removing the phrase under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, that there's a pretty stark difference there. Yes. Uh, yes, those are... Which, But the other thing that is interesting is that even in removing the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, it's only 49%. So, yeah, right. Uh, it, and it's the lowest ranking one. Yeah. So it's the only, like, really... Well, I mean, removing exemptions to vaccinations, like religious exemptions to vaccination is kind of like a church-state issue, but, like, the most obvious church state issue mm. uh, is the one that kind of like ranks to lower among uh, secular folk. Yeah. I mean, thankfully also kind of a symbolic thing, like nobody's yeah. going to die from the word under God being in the pledge of allegiance. It's a bit annoying, but you know, it's, it's more symbolic in my view, at least what, what's really encouraging is that these things pull in the 70 percentile, 70% range expanding healthcare, um, investing in renewable energy to address climate change, increasing and expanding government aid for people who need it, tuition-free public colleges, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, universal basic income even, 65% of all Americans favor $1,000 a month for all adults and 75% of the secular folks. So, I mean, these are pretty progressive policies by American standards um, and all polling quite well. You'd never know it from the political debate that we're currently having. Yes, and I think the other aspect is to what extent a lot of these economic ideas are, are just, you know, the the coronavirus crisis is just like making people rethink that. I agree with that, uh, yeah. Because it's people <laughs> without jobs, without like a, a steady income. So these, these policy ideas start becoming a, a, a little bit more uh, interesting and and you know, necessary. And, and, and you're right. Like, you know, the discourse, the discourse doesn't capture that, but I mean, it's been a while in which like American public opinion and American policymaking have diverged oh, in a way. Unbelievable. Yeah. You would, yeah. If you compare like the 538 elected members of Congress and pulled them on these things, you would see that, right? Like you would see, the difference and and they're not maybe voting you know if you could give them a pill that would only allow them to answer the questions based on what they personally would like to see for themselves and their family you know versus what will keep them in office and all the political considerations you know you might get a different answer as well but um yeah it's it's wild and i keep thinking that more politicians uh that would just run honestly on progressive causes like bernie sanders did or like AOC, who's just, you know, boldly out there saying, um, you know, we need Medicare for all. That's my platform. And lo and behold, it's wildly popular, <laughs> you know, instead of this cautious, like, we can't say that, that'll be too progressive. Nobody will vote for us. Maybe they will, you know, if you, you know, put out a, a really intelligent view about it. Yeah. And, you know, go, going a little bit off track, uh, but going in that same vein, I think another issue, which is something that I want to do after I move a little bit from, from secular public opinion, going more into secular representation in politics, which is, I think it's an, another subject that, you know, it's very undercovered. Right. But going into, into political representation, I think one of the aspects, you know, I work at Demos before I founded Socialitica as a senior policy analyst and did uh, work on money in politics and, there's these 
dearth of politicians who come from working class backgrounds. Yep. And whether like how, how much that, you know, how, how, how the background and, and the economic conditions of the politicians actually matter mm. in terms of policymaking. It's not something we talk a lot. Uh, and I'll have a name for you at, at the end. So we can. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's an interview that that's hugely interesting to me. Um, the, yeah, representation not only of secular people in politics, because I think in the secular community, that's the type of representation we're usually talking about. And in the wider culture, of course, we're looking at the representation of um, women and people of color in elected offices. Um, we've seen a good wave of, of new, younger, uh, that's another representation, younger people, people oh, of color, yes. women, you know, and and also non-religious people. But what you're also suggesting is this economic factor, which is the working class perspective. Um, I just watched, finally, um, the documentary Knocking Down the House. It's been in my queue on Netflix for a long time. And, you know, all of those candidates that they cover, the four um, candidates that they cover in that documentary, including AOC, you know, all say, um, maybe no one more eloquently than the woman from Kentucky, um, from Appalachia, you know, this district needs to be represented by people who understand the conditions that people are living in here, you know, and, and, you know, they haven't yet won their, their office, but um, with the exception of AOC, and it looks like Cori Bush now looking, looking at a victory in Missouri's first district and um, Jamal Brown in New York and AOC will be reelected. And so will the other members of the so-called squad. But um, yeah, so I think things are changing, but that working class background would be such a delight to see, um, in our, you know, too many lawyers, too many Ivy League degrees. Nothing wrong with having an Ivy League degree. Sometimes I wish I had one, but it doesn't really matter that much, you know, in um, everyday life, does it? Not really. But and it it also tells you about you know how close these networks are. Yes, uh, yes. You know, and and who can run for office or who is seen as someone who can run for office? Uh, one of the amazing things is like. What makes a candidate like a serious candidate, especially for the president? It can raise money. Raise it's money. Like, That's it. Know, yep. It's 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 not like you know has like a constituency or anything like that. No, or a coherent political money. ideology that will you know benefit yeah. the community. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to mention here briefly about policy. I mean, you ask a, a range of questions, uh, policy questions that are, as you said, in a cluster of economic issues. I've noticed in the secular community this real tendency to steer away from economic issues as as divisive. You know, we can agree on separation of church and state, strictly speaking, um, issues of equality, cultural issues around equality, LGBTQ equality, women's equality, um, you know, equality for, for um, trans people specifically, et cetera. Um, but when it comes to some of these issues around um, like Medicare for all or um, free public college or minimum wage, it's, it's a little harder to get the secular community specifically to see those as secular issues. But what you're identifying here is that they are secular issues. I mean, they're at least they're issues that secular people care about. Yes, uh, absolutely. One of the, I think, the, you know, uh, how, how I phrased it sounding like uh, <laughs> diplomatic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, 
you know, the, the, you know, I've been enough uh, for a long, for enough time of being a professional lefty, uh, meaning that I've been working for professional uh, for, for progressive organizations, whether as an employee or as a contractor. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the secular movement in many ways is not different in, in the case that it has a lot of progressive people, but the, the disconnect between donors to organizations and members of organizations is, is amazing. Right. Right. And so to, you know, to, to some extent is how, how much you can, um, focus on in terms of like, you know, what funding you get for it. Yeah. And how you'll scare uh, and the away. Other, certain... The other, my other experience have been, especially in DC has been that there's a lot of progressive secular people who are not secular movement people. Right. And so they are, you know, the, their, their secular identity is not their main thing. So mm. they, you know, they belong, they, they work for the Sierra Club or they work for Demos uh, or they work for like public citizen or organizations like that, but not necessarily like have an AHA or a CFI or, or a FFRF membership. Right. Uh, and they don't see themselves as members of those communities. Mm. And and, and and it's to our detriment because there's a lot of professional experience in there uh, of people who, you know, who can be very uh, good to our movement in the sense of giving it some expertise that we sorely lack. How can we get more uh, of those and, folks to see our movement as something that that they would should be a part of? Uh, I mean, in my anecdotal, I don't have data on this. So this is like my anecdotes of talking to people, trying yeah. them to join, uh, sometimes successfully, most times unsuccessfully. Uh, I think it, it has a lot to do with people not seeing us as a movement of church and state issues and they don't really care about that. Yeah. Really not care about that. Uh, and, and in general, like, you know, don't not not thinking that you know this is it's 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 not organized to in the way that you know at least they say it and they're not really organized in the way that it's conductive to the kind of movements that they want to build. Right. Yeah. I I do think that sometimes the church and state dialogue comes off as abstract. You know, it's um. The same way that, you know, constitution, other constitutional arguments often, you know, constitutional arguments have real world consequences, of course, and that's what really concerns people. But sometimes when we get into those discussions, it, you know, it gets very esoteric and very abstract pretty quickly. And people are like, look, I can't put food on my table. I can't pay my rent. And you want me to worry about, you know, a, a phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, I just, you know, I don't have time for that. And that's what 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 the survey shows, right? Economic issues, especially as we, uh, eco, uh, economic inequality increases, like people are not really care about. I wouldn't call it esoteric. That was, you know, like I'll use a phrase from Ronald Inglehart and say like postmodern uh, <laughs> kind of issues. Uh, well, don't let and, me. I don't. I, I don't identify that way. But or or, or in essentially first world problems. Uh, oh yeah, to, to a large extent, and. I don't think it's, it's aesthetic. I don't think it's merely about window tr- dressings. I think it's they are substantive conversations, but it's it's sort of like, you know, 
I, I'm deeply involved in the uh, homelessness, anti-homelessness and uh, renters' rights movement here in Los Angeles and my city of Pasadena. And talking to people about housing policy, it's just so dense and arcane. And we're constantly trying to figure out how to lift up the principles, you know, so that or even just any anti-capitalist discourse, you know, people are like anti-capitalist, like they can't even imagine what that would yes. be like, you know, like as Mark Fisher said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. But, you know, go, going in, into that same line, like one of the, when I was at Demos, I was working on money in politics, which is esoteric as you get. Right. Like, and so, you know, what the, the aspect that we were working on it, it was making into a more populist issue, like, and, and seeing the help, helping people see the connection yes. of, you know, like elected officials raising insane amounts of money and, and not being accountable. Right. And I think like on some level people think about it, but most of the frame is about corruption. And when you talk to people about corruption, they just turn off and it's talking to them, like shifting the narrative into something that, you know, empowering them hmm. uh, and like removing the issue or like, restricting the issue like restricting the flow of money uh using these reforms to actually be able to do progressive policy making and not having like you know the the boogie co-brothers like block everything in the way right right, right. uh and i think and i think we need to even 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 separation of church and state doesn't have to be esoteric in that way i mean we can connect in the ways in which like you know, like all these subsidies to churches are detrimental to, to like you know funding for schools and like you know tax breaks and all these kind of stuff. Public so that, that affects people in a real way. Yeah. Let's get into um, before this goes so long that people stop listening to us, which is always a real concern. <laughs> but I'm having fun. So, so you mentioned er- earlier, much earlier in the show that. Um, you found that there were among secular people about 30% who were going to vote for Donald Trump in, um, and about 68% that were going to vote for, for Joe Biden. I wonder if you would like drill down into that a little bit more and, you know, help us understand who are the secular people who want to vote for Donald Trump? Because I think the picture of, of the Donald Trump administration for four years. I mean, four years ago, it was an unknown and people maybe voted because they just wanted to shake things up or he was a businessman and we needed a business person to run the country. Now we have four years of evidence of, you know, the way that he is and his, um, you know, the Muslim ban, uh, you know, anti-religious kind of um, thing. And then the ways that he has stacked his cabinet with, you know, people like Betsy DeVos and others who wish to, uh, and the way he's selected Supreme Court justices to pick something super recent um who are the non-religious who are are really excited about donald trump so they identify as conservative not surprisingly Mm -hmm. uh they don't care much about science but they are not necessarily the nothing in particular is kind of spiritual but not religious Uh, so it's this really interesting cohort and and, you know, just looking at those issues uh, that are in the survey, mm-hmm. it, it gives you a sense like, you know, so there's this conservative cohort that has always been around. 
Uh, so if you look at the voting patterns of the knowns, like they, it never reaches 30%. So, you know, of course, this survey was taken in September before the debates. And so who knows what the number is right now? PRI has like 7422 hmm. uh, in a survey that they did in, in October. Um, so it's still within the margin of error of this survey. That's good. Um, so it's, it's still within that range. So it, it's, it may be that it, it it will get lower. It may be that it will get higher. But certainly there's a, a, there's a conservative cohort within the secular movement uh, that has been always there. I mean, most people call them libertarians. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, I think one aspect in there is, and if you look at, at the known vote over time, uh, which I, I did kind of like in the inaugural column of my non-decision 2020 that I did for the humanist, uh, you know, there's, a, there's this long vote or the, this history of voting disproportionately for third-party candidates. Oh, right. And given that there's no real, like, third-party candidate right now that is catching attention, whether like Gary Johnson or uh, Jill Stein in 2016, uh, that a lot of those people are coming home. Uh, You know, like conservative-leaning libertarian uh, people uh, are flocking to Donald Trump. After all, like, you know, he's deregulating the environment. That's right. Uh, As recently as These people don't really care much about climate change. Uh, and so, so, you know, there, there's, there's aspects of libertarians actually, you know, they, they may not like the, the like overly religious aspect of Trump presidency, at least the pandering to the religious right, but they do like the deregulation of environmental things and tax cuts. And so, and the white supremacy, I mean, that, that cannot be understated, right? The, the the white supremacy wrong strong in the movement yeah yeah absolutely uh, and so that 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 may explain part of it uh we there were no explicit questions about white supremacy but certainly if you look at attitudes toward immigration and and yeah. attitudes toward like children and you look at attitudes toward the environment you start seeing a picture of like People who don't care much about Black Lives Matter, don't care much about race, uh, don't care much about Me Too either, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, you know it's it's heavily male and white. Yeah, yeah. There's this uh, organization I'm sure you've seen, uh, Republican Atheists. Um, I don't think they have much traction. They they try to make a little noise on social media, um, and it's just been so puzzling to like even the Bradenburg Cross. Uh, lawsuit that the American Humanist Association brought against, I guess, the uh, uh, veterans of foreign wars and the state of Maryland or something. I forget who the defendants were, but, um, you know, and again, it was large... the town of Bradensburg, which oh, is not far from, my, from town, where I live. Actually. Right, exactly. Like the town of Bradensburg. Yeah. And uh, again, a largely symbolic case, no real material concerns of people's lives embedded in there. Um, you know, and I saw, you know, Republican atheists and some other conservative atheists basically siding with the Christians, you know, saying that this is a, a violation of, you know, of uh, history and v- veterans, concerns for veterans and that sort of thing. So I think there is kind of an Americanism, um, which is kind of white male 
um, libertarian. I, I often identified when I was doing my year without God, and I was really surprised by this libertarian streak within atheism. And it, it hit me, and this is a crude analysis, but it, it sort of hit me one day that when you give up on God, it's sort of like, I don't want this this God bossing me around anymore. Like, I don't believe he exists and I've been living under this fake person's rule for all of my life. So forget about him. And furthermore, nobody's going to tell me what to do anymore. You know, if you've lived under a regime of, you know, people telling you what to do all the time, i.e. religion, it would, might be easy to jettison all limitations on, on your uh, alleged freedom. I've also challenged a few libertarians to show me a, a cohort of uh, poor libertarians, and I'm still waiting for that that uh, revelation. <laughs> That's kind of like the one million dollar uh, challenge, James Randy challenge. That's right. Yeah, one million dollar challenge. Show me like a sizable cohort. I don't know what the number would be of you know poor by by American demographic standards, uh, libertarian identifying as libertarian. Um, it's sort of the I got mine philosophy. <laughs> um, well, let's do a quick lightning round here. And this is where I, I, you know, I'm going to do the thing I'm sure you hate, which is I'm going to assume that as a, a researcher and a data analyst that you also can predict the future. Um, no. So so let's let's do this. Let's 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 do some predictions, shall we? Can you can you go? Okay, with I just hope that James Randi doesn't show up tonight <laughs> in your dreams. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we know that we're just joking, but um, so what do you predict for the presidential election? I, I mean, if 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 the polls are are right, and I trust the polls because uh, you know you're a pollster. A pollster. <laughs> um, and you know, I I know a lot of the people who work in in the field, and and you know they're they're serious people, and they really care about getting it right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you should expect, barring any legal shenanigans, that Joe Biden should should win. How big a win? Anybody's guess. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I I, I think it's pretty clear that the i i i think when when i was going into the election as we were getting into 2020 it wasn't clear to me to what extent people i mean people do, do really don't like donald trump like mm-hmm. and, and and even if we look at the the narrative that we have for elections like donald trump lost the popular vote like most people don't like Donald Trump. And (laughs) if the reverse had been true, like let's say Hillary had won by 170,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, we would be talking about how the country rejected racism. Right. Uh, With the numbers not really changing that much. (laughs) Uh, But what has become clear is that there's no, there's very few undecideds, like there's no movement that can happen. I mean, there was a, a, a there was a possibility that happened when when Trump won that you know there was so many undecided that they will break for him and that was essentially what happened. Uh, but this is not the case. There's no people to peel off, and like with so many people voting early, uh, there's not much that can happen within 
five today days. Today and election day. Yeah, I, the New York Times reported, I think yesterday, that there was no bump either direction from the last debate. Like it didn't move anyone anywhere. So, yeah, so I, I think barring shenanigans, Biden should win. Yeah. And what are the chances you think that there would be some serious um, shenanigans on the order of what we've read, like in that that Atlantic article that was so popular a month ago or so about like serious, um, you know, where a governor would throw out all the electors and assign electors, you know, the way that he or she wants them to go? You know, I, I don't, I mean, that that's definitely a possibility. This is going to be probable. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure to, you know, to, to a large extent, like if you still want to call your, you know, if you want to still be on good standing in the world as a, as a leader, mm. like that is, you know, that, that is outright stealing an election and yeah, popular will. So global peer I pressure. Don't, I, I don't think that's something that could happen. Like, you know, there's, there's still, uh, mm. you know, there's some face still to save, mm. uh, when you talk about being a democratic country, <laughs> that's encouraging to hear. You know, it's, it's that's something to hold on to. There's still some face left to say. But what do I know? Like, you know, but but at at the same time, like, you know, these people don't surprise me anymore. Uh, what about the Senate? What are the chances you think the Democrats take control of the Senate? I'm still a skeptical. Like, I see people, like, you know, I see 538 now says that it's likely that they're going to win the Senate. Uh, I'm skeptical mostly because of where the seats are. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, you know, those, that North Carolina seat, I think it's doable, but I mean, that's who knows what the Republicans are going to do yeah. uh, in there. And, and then Georgia is a whole different kind of worms. Uh, so I think it's doable. Uh, it may end up 50, 50 with Kamala Harris being the deciding vote. Uh, but I, I wouldn't bet on a hmm. large majority, although I, you know, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think the chances are in a? Let's say Biden wins the election and the Senate tips ever so slightly to the Democrat side, and we expand a little bit our hold on the House. That a Biden administration in the first two three years, you know, really does some progressive things like address the inequality of the or the. Um, the undemocratic nature of the electoral college or add Supreme court justices to the court. Do you see, you know, some progressive moves coming from a Biden administration with a mandate? I think probably the most progressive thing we're going to see right away. If, if something happens like that, it's like trying to pass an eight package. Oh, coronavirus. Uh, yeah. Nobody's going to get. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be the first order of the day. Yeah. Uh, trying to get some some economic aid, uh, and then on like you know the courts is interesting because I, you know I'm not sure Biden is for it. Yeah, I, even publicly, like you know, I, I think a, a lot of the stuff that people you know these candidates say publicly is like, uh, yeah, who knows? Either trying not to, you know, you're not trying to freak out. Like, you know, you you have a steady lead. You haven't done anything. Like, why do you want to you wanna mess with it? Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, essentially, if you say you are for it, you're not going to add voters. 
So right. what, so what's what are you the gonna, point? What are you going to change? But but I think a few things could happen. Uh, personally, I would like to see the House of Representatives expanded. That's the that's the best way of dealing with the Electoral College. Um, because I, you live in California, you have the largest uh, uh, delegation and still underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, like the Electoral College, one easy fits rather than like going through a, 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 a amendment, it's essentially like expanding the house. Uh, I, you know, people talk about adding Guam and Puerto Rico as states. No, as a Puerto Rican, like, you know, like you, you, you're just going colonial again. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, why don't you ask Puerto Ricans if they want to be a state, but actually for real this time, not like with those, like, uh, <laughs> you know, those crappy polls that they, the, the pro statehood party throws every two years or so. Right. Right. Um, right. So, you know, uh, you know, a Congress backed, uh, plan to respect results, uh, so yeah, no, don't make Puerto Rico a state just because, like, it, because you may even be surprised. You have no idea how much power Pentecostals having there. That's uh, right. Yeah, it's, like it's a, so utilitarian to like, oh, we need more political power in the United States. Let's make Puerto Rico a state. Like, yes. Uh, so, but the Supreme Court, it's. I'm not sure if it will happen, but I, I think the things had gotten so bad that it's a good persuasion. And it may even be a good persuasion in the like uh, FDR kind of way, which like you know freak out the, the, the Republicans and the Supreme Court enough to get the New Deal stuff passing, mm. uh, passing constitutional muster. I have a, a friend uh, f- uh, from grad school who is a constitutional scholar, and I ask him, Why, what, "Can we just get rid of judicial review?" And he's like, "Yeah, that's pretty easy." Uh, right. So I mean, you can also just ignore it. Review is it's one. Uh, and just don't care and but i think the other aspect uh of of these is the sense of how we progressives and you know in liberals in particular have been looking at the courts and people just remember the 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 warren and burger courts as like you know being the epitome of the supreme court but historically the supreme court hasn't been helpful to progressive causes and so we're just regressing to the mean Mm-hmm. And and we have to, you know, we have to, you know, it's only for a small time period of time in the United States history where progressives weren't fighting the Supreme Court and were defending it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just got to learn that history back. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. There's so many undemocratic features of uh, the American Constitution and American uh, jurisprudence and it's just uh, really disheartening. I mean, the Senate is a great example as well. Like you talked about expanding the House, but the Senate is the most undemocratic institution, maybe other than the Supreme Court. <laughs> like two thirds of the of the uh, the government. <laughs> not, but really... the Supreme Court is not. Uh, I mean, it's not a technically a bad constitutional thing with the exception of judicial review because once you're bond, you're you're binding yourself to it that that's a problem yeah uh otherwise it's just you know making this decision and solving uh conflict between particularly between states right uh but not necessarily deciding what the constitution means yeah well thanks for spending this time with us thank you for the work that you're doing and um We'll see if your uh, predictions come true in a few days. 
thank you for the opportunity. It, you know, it's, uh, I've been looking forward to do this. We've been talking for a while, and I'm, and I'm glad that, that it worked out finally. Thanks for listening. This was a little longer than usual, so congrats if you've made it this far. We are absolutely leaving behind one of the most intensely harmful U.S. presidencies in modern times, certainly the most grotesquely hateful. And we're turning the page to a new set of opportunities and challenges. Celebrate this victory if you like. Allow yourself to feel good about the refusal of more Trumpism. And then let's get back to working for the humanist vision of planetary thriving. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details